picked out in the Bible, and particularly in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to finish up Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. That being done now, I'd like to go back to Matthew 5 and pick up where we left off in this series. When we got down to verse 7, where it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The word merciful here actually just means essentially pain in heart. Those who have pain in their heart for the good or the benefit of others is the way that can be applied. We're not hard against, not down on, but have pain in heart for the sake of others, for their good. It says here that if you're going to obtain mercy, you have to show mercy. And if we read on down in this same teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which we'll get to eventually, I'm not going there now, we'll come to it in due course, he makes it very clear that the amount of mercy you show is the amount that you will receive. Uh, what goes around comes around in that sense. God will treat you like you treat others. Now that, to me, is a scary proposition. Because as human beings, we tend sometimes to be uh, impatient and unmerciful one toward another and not really have the best interests of everyone else in our heart and mind. Now, I'm not going to try to go through all the passages that talk about mercy in the Bible today. Not unless you want to stay till well after midnight, maybe tomorrow. Because the word mercy itself is mentioned 276 times in the Bible. Now, I didn't look up how many times merciful. And then you could also add compassionate and a lot of other synonyms. And we could be here a long, long time because this is one of the major points of the law, as Christ pointed out to the Pharisees. You, you mind all the little stuff, but you forget the big stuff, the weightier matters of the law, and included in the three that he mentioned was mercy itself. I'm going to take a little different approach on it today than might be traditional in talking about mercy and, and the old, you should ought to have mercy approach, which is sort of what I've said to this point, but I want to show an overall broad view of God and his attitude and what he is working out. And in so doing, if we can comprehend the mind of God and how he thinks, then it will help us in adjusting our thoughts and thinking more like he thinks. So let's understand God, because he is the most merciful of all beings in the universe. And he is the example to whom we must look. I'm going to go, first of all, to James 2 for a moment. James 2, at verse 13. It echoes the thought I've already addressed, which we'll see later in the Sermon on the Mount, so-called. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. So, unmerciful judgment will be given to those who do not show mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. Mercy is more important than judgment. A lot of times, we like to make judgments. We like to pigeonhole people, or pin the tail on them, or however you might want to express it. 
and we compliment ourselves and pat ourselves on the back because we are able to correctly assess someone's attitude or approach or them as a person, and we think we have them all figured out, and sometimes we come up with a critical or judgmental viewpoint of that individual. But God says that mercy is greater. Having a compassionate, pained feeling for that person to help them in every way they can to be everything they can be. Chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above... Now, man has his worldly wisdom, but there is wisdom which comes from above. And here is how it is defined. It's first pure. It doesn't have improper motives. It's, it's pure in thought and motivation toward helping others. Then peaceable. So if we're going to be wise, we have to be pure in our thoughts. We have to be peaceable in our approach. Gentle. Easy to be entreated. If we're wise, people can come to us and make their complaint about us without us becoming all defensive and upset and vain and egocentric. But we tend to be defensive and angry when someone has a complaint or a gripe or a, uh, a thought about something we are not doing or need to do. It's so easy not to be easy or easily entreated. We should come to the point in our lives where people should be able to feel comfortable to bring a problem to us. Now, you know as well as I do that it is very, very difficult for any one of us to bring a problem to the attention of someone else, isn't it? We may pray over it. Maybe we may worry over it like a dog on a bone. We may be afraid of what will happen. There are a lot of reasons that we're afraid to approach somebody and point out something that we feel is wrong in what they might be saying or doing. But we all need to come to the point that we're humble enough and patient enough and merciful enough that someone could feel comfortable coming and saying, I know that person is enough under control that I can bring something up without them getting angry or upset or frustrated or, you know, those bad reactions that people normally have when we try to do that. So if we're wise, we will become easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. We should all come with the Spirit of God to the point that we're absolutely full of mercy, willing to forgive, willing to overlook, willing to be entreated, not put the other person down, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That verse is pretty full. It'd be hard to add anything to it. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Being unmerciful does not create peace. Being merciful does create peace. And if we find that we're warring among ourselves and with each other, then someone is not full 
of peace and mercy. That's all. Because even when there are conflicts, if we have the right attitudes and we're full of mercy, then we should be able to resolve those conflicts and remain brothers and sisters in Christ and love in spite of whatever we might have done to harm one another. That's just the way it ought to be. We should be able to get past it in love. It's a big order, though, isn't it? Now, let's ask some questions. How do we grasp mercy? How do we understand it? How do we apply it in a godly way? Or, on the other side of that coin, when, in the human realm, does mercy become stupidity or weakness? Where I'm just being merciful becomes weakness, where we're condoning or allowing things that should not be. Where's the line? Perhaps there's some wisdom to be learned there, and as we get into this further today, we will see how God has reacted at times, because mercy can take some different turns. It's easy for us to say, well, mercy is just saying, oh, I forgive you, I forgive you. That isn't always the case. We can be stupid and weak, thinking we're being merciful. We have to be careful. We have to learn. We have to observe God and what He has done and how He has reacted in a lot of different circumstances in order for us to begin to perceive what His mercy is all about. Now, I'm going to say here that ultimately in the human realm, with us among ourselves, that the good of the person is the bottom line. Sometimes mercy can be being pretty hard. Sometimes mercy can be very kind. Now, is that a contradiction? No. It just is that we must always bear in mind what is best for the individual. What will ultimately do that person the most good? And we're going to see that in the character of God and his overall plan and purpose and what he is doing. Let me ask you a question before we get into this. We've heard of mercy killings. Is there a time when someone could be killed and be done in the name of mercy? This may be a much broader subject than we might have thought. We should be kind to everyone is not all that there is to this subject. So we have to learn all the ramifications of mercy, how it reacts, what it is. When an act will be merciful, when a word will be merciful, and what kind of word could that include in a particular circumstance? There's where a lot of wisdom is needed, and it does not come easy. I've debated that at times in my life and dealing with people. Am I being merciful or am I being stupid here? Am I being strong in mercy or am I being weak 
in what I allow or how I deal with an individual. Now, that may not make much sense to you at this moment. Maybe it does in some respects, but I think by the time we're done today, you'll see a little more clearly what I'm trying to say here. Now, I'm going to go to John 3. John 3. To begin to understand a little bit more about how God approaches things and what His overall purpose is. Now, I made a statement at the beginning of this series, as we first went into Matthew 5, that Jesus left the multitudes and went up into the mountains, and when He was set, His disciples came to Him and He taught them. And these words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 were intended and pointed at them, not the multitudes that followed Christ around. Someone had a question about that, and it's perhaps a natural question, because at the end of that so-called sermon or teaching session, it says that the people or the multitude, however it's phrased, were amazed at the things that he taught. Now, is there a contradiction here between what is stated at the beginning in Matthew 5 and what is stated at the end of that session? No, there is not. I think the truth of that matter is this, that he got away from the multitude so that he could teach his disciples things that were meant for their ears only. And I think I can prove that before we're done here. And other people who tended to follow him around kept going up the mountain. Ah, there they are. There he is trying to catch up. And finally, they did. So they heard some of what he was teaching, even though it was not directed at them. Did they understand what they heard? Did they grasp what he was teaching the disciples? We'll go on and we'll find some answers to that. Now let's go to John 3 and understand God's plan and purpose a little bit at the beginning here. John 3, uh, verse 13. And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, Moses lifted the snake up on a post before the people. And what he's saying here is, I have to die. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God's goal and purpose in the beginning with Adam and Eve was ultimately to give them eternal life and to give everyone that was born to them throughout the ages eternal life. And mankind had not been accomplishing that purpose up until Christ came to this earth. And even since he came to this earth, we do not today see a godly world, do we? But it is very clearly stated that his purpose is to save the world. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, that's talking about the people 
It's not talking about the way of life or the cultures that we find ourselves in today. That will not be preserved because they are the cultures of Satan. He is the present ruler of this world. He is the one who has established the way of life that people are living today across the world. He has deceived the whole world. And God is only opening the eyes of a few right now. Isn't that pretty obvious? He's not opening the eyes of the world. We'll see that shown a little later. But, what I want to point out here is we have a world that is sin-sick. We have a world that denies God, as was stated in the sermonette in the Psalms. We have a world that has turned their hearts from God, and He has given them up to their hearts' lusts. He is basically hands-off. He's letting us live however we choose to live on this earth today. And the vast majority have chosen to go Satan's way in the cultures that he has developed. But his goal and his purpose for every one of us and everyone on this earth is ultimately that they might have eternal life that they might not ever have any more tears or pain or heart sickness or sin or difficulty or or any kind of problem. Peaceful, happy, secure, eternal life. That's his goal for every human being who has ever lived on this earth. Now, God has intervened in the affairs of men at times, hasn't he? Noah's flood, Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's done some pretty, what would be termed disastrous things to mankind. Killed all but eight at one point. Confused the languages so people couldn't get along and would fight and fume with each other from that time forward, which they have done to this day. Sodom and Gomorrah, he just wiped out like a grease spot. And yet, we find all through the Bible that God is merciful and that His mercy endures forever. Psalm 136, every verse mentions the mercy of God in that whole chapter. It's a lot of repetition. Now, how could a merciful God do all that? Now, this subject came up years ago in Worldwide, and an article came out entitled, Why Did God Let Johnny Die? You might remember that one. Why isn't God taking a hand right now? Why do we have all the sickness and disease and war and fighting and killing, violence, famine, pestilence, starvation that is going on? Why would God let a little child drown in a backyard pool or a creek? Why can this happen? If God is ever-loving, all-loving, and merciful, why do these things go on? Why is the world filled with it? How much good news do you hear on any news broadcast you might tune into. Very little. You hear of robbery, rape, murder, drowning, car accidents that maim and kill. It's all you hear about. You don't hear good news. is isn't news if it's good. Why would God allow these things? What is His purpose? You know, in Exodus 20, verse 6, where He talks about the Ten Commandments, 
It says, I will have mercy upon thousands who obey me and keep my commandments. Now, there's a clue. Out of all the millions and billions of people that have lived on the face of this earth, only thousands have obeyed him and kept his commandments. Ultimately, only 144,000, that's it, will be in the first resurrection as first fruits. That's all. That's thousands, not millions, not billions. Is God leaving the rest out? Is he unmerciful? Is he unkind? Does he not have their best interests in mind? What's wrong with this picture? You would think an all-loving God would be trying to save the world right now. He would want evangelists and preachers and teachers going from door to door and saving the world from the devil and letting them be saved in Christ. Now, they quote John 3:16 and 17, which we've already read, as their goal and their purpose because they are taking those two verses, basically, as their authority to do God's work for him, and they don't always understand everything God is doing. I suppose, had they been watching the ark, they might have had trouble understanding all those people drowning. Let's get out and save them. You know, the water's up to here or under their nose. They're up in the tallest tree they could find. And you're swimming along beside them saying, Except the Lord, we can be saved. That's the Protestant picture. Is that what God is doing? Where all does His mercy go? It endures forever. And it's always there. Then how do we explain it? It goes back to that statement I made. The good of the person, ultimately, is the bottom line. What is best for or will help that person the most in the long run, not in the short term? God always takes a long view of everything. What will be best for us before it's all over? What will be best for us right now? I think if... People judge what's happened in the church in the last 20 years. They might say, well, where's the love and mercy of God? Why did all this happen? Well, this is a mess. Well, do you see God's hand, mercy, in that? When we have people bickering and arguing and fighting, won't even speak to each other, they can have relatives in one splinter of the church and can't speak to them, and the ones in the other splinter can't even speak back? I mean, even family members by telephone is forbidden in some groups. Is that the hand of a merciful God? What's he doing here? Christ lived on this earth and walked it for 33 and a half years. The last three and a half of that, he did a specific ministry. Let's look for a moment, maybe you haven't thought of this, I hadn't really until this morning. What was the net result of all the teaching and preaching and miracles and everything that Christ did during his ministry? His whole life, but more particularly in his ministry. You say you'll know something by the fruits. What did it produce? God came to this earth. It wasn't Jehovah Witness, it wasn't a Mormon missionary, it wasn't an evangelist 
in the church of God. It wasn't an apostle, although he is called an apostle in one place. But I mean, it wasn't just another human being. This was God on earth. What did he accomplish in terms of the fruit of his ministry? Well, his teaching produced, first of all, I've got four categories, there might be others, many enemies. The things he said cut like a sword. All the leaders of the nations of Israel and the Jews hated him to the point of killing him, and a lot of people were there to cheer it on when it happened. So, they persecuted him and said they would also persecute us there in John 15, 16, and 17. So the first thing that his ministry did was create a lot of enemies. Secondly, it created a lot of followers. People who wanted the bennies of being around him, the benefits. They wanted healed, they wanted fed, they wanted whatever they thought he might give them. So there was there were camp followers if I put it that way, who would follow him around hoping, you know, and they'd even cut a hole in the roof and let somebody down to get near him so he could be healed. So there were a lot in the category of followers, thousands of them, who followed him around to see what he would do next or see if they could be healed or their friends or relatives could be healed. And then by the end of his ministry, third category, there were a few believers people who believed the things that he was saying. Well, very many. You know, there's a, there's a big difference between a follower and a believer. There were a few believers. Now let's go to the fourth category. How many converts were there? Zero. Through all the ministry of Christ, there was not one convert, not one converted mind, by the time he finished his ministry. Name one. Weren't any. If there was one, you would have thought it would have been Peter. Let me read Luke 22, verse 33 to you. His ministry was finished. What did he say to Peter? But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. So by the time the Messiah, the Christ, had walked the earth, done his entire ministry, not even Peter was converted. Zero converts. Now, if you had a minister out here somewhere in the church, the Church of God or any other church, and you ask him, now you've been preaching and teaching through your life, how many converts have you made? If he had to swallow hard and say zero, he would feel very, very ashamed. Do we then declare Christ's ministry on this earth a failure? A total failure? Now, he had come here, it says, he had been sent here to save the world. And if by the time he had finished his life here and his ministry here, there were zero converts, 
had he somehow failed his mission? Had he not accomplished what he came here to do? No. He doesn't fail at anything. In fact, he was an absolute resounding success in what he came here to begin to do. He started a process in the Garden of Eden, and he started another process during his life here on this earth. A process that ultimately would lead to conversion of people, and a process that would eventually lead to eternal life. But it was not his goal and his mission and his purpose to do that while he was here. Now, when did the conversion process start? There were people baptized by John the Baptist and by Christ himself, but they weren't converted. They did not have the Spirit of God to change and convert and transform their minds from the carnal way they thought to the spiritual walking by the Spirit that is so desired of God in us. Not long after Christ said that to Peter, Pentecost came. And by powerful miracles, God made it plain that he was working through Peter, James, John, and the other apostles, who themselves received God's Spirit on that day, became converted and transformed in their thinking, their understanding, and in their actions. Peter, who in an unconverted, carnal, save my filthy hide, shortly before then, by running and saying, I don't know him, stood up in front of people who said, these men are insane, they're crazy, and preached one of the most powerful sermons that has ever been preached. And wasn't it that same day 5,000 converted, or 3,000, I forget, but once if three is mentioned, once five is mentioned. But over a period of a few days there, there were thousands of converts made. Now, obviously, Christ did not intend to convert anyone while he was here. That would have created problems. Well, you listen to John the Baptist, or you listen to Peter or James, I was converted by Jesus Christ himself. Well, that attitude, of course, shows no transformation of mind. It shows a carnal, egotistical, self-interested mind. He made sure that the focus was not on God on earth, but the focus had to be God in heaven. And he appointed men whom he trained to preach Christ in heaven and the Father in heaven, and to cause people to look to them who from heaven can say, So he did not intend to convert people while he was here. He intended the conversion process to germinate on the day of Pentecost and then spread from that point. But I'll show you, he did not intend in this life, in this age, for it to spread to the whole earth. He did not intend that. In fact, as I've already quoted, Exodus 20, verse 6, he said he would show mercy on thousands who would obey him and keep his commandments. We can see in Revelation 14.4 that the first fruits consist only of 144,000. 
So out of all the suggested 60 billion that may have lived on this earth, his goal and purpose in this age, from that day of Pentecost until he returns, and even retroactively to a few in the Old Testament, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on and so so on. Only 144,000 will be harvested at his return as first fruits. Now, has he failed in his purpose to convert the world? To save the world and to give it eternal life? Or is this something he's doing in phases? And he has a purpose which always will show mercy. In some form, everything God is doing is mercy. Even people who are dying right now, very violently, or with tummies that are empty. Let's examine, to back this up now, some of the things that he said while he was here on this earth. I want to go first of all to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. You see, Protestants today would think that he gave that wonderful sermon on them out to bring all those multitudes of people to him and to convert them so they might accept the Lord and be a part of God's family and go to heaven. That's the way they would interpret that. It's the way it was taught to you and me when we were small or in Protestant churches if we went there. Is that the case? Matthew 13, I'll begin in verse 1, I think. Same day when Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So there were thousands of people there that day. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and he gave this parable which the Protestant churches would teach you. And I've heard it said that he spoke in parables so that these simple country folk might understand spiritual things in the light of their lives on the farm. That's the way it's explained in Protestant churches. He was trying to convert them, and he spoke to them this way, so that they could understand in the simplest of terms what eternal life and going to Jesus is all about. Okay? That's the traditional explanation. Let's read on. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth, and when the sun came up, they were scorched. I, my job today is not to explain this parable, but to get to another point. But others fell on the good ground and brought forth fruit. And then he said, Who has ears to hear? Let him hear, verse 9. Thousands of people were there, and he says, Anyone that has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not like he's saying, Now, did you get that? Shall I go over it again? Didn't say that. He said, if you have ears to hear, fine, hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why speak you to them in parables? Now, we're going to get a different version from this than what I would have gotten from my Methodist preacher when I was seven, eight years of age. I think we will. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. 
He was not trying to get those people to understand spiritual things. He was not trying to convert them to the kingdom of heaven. He was not trying to convert them as followers of himself or of his Father in heaven. He said to you, you disciples, no one else, it is given to understand. And they had a terrible difficulty understanding because often he had to explain it to them later. They couldn't get it. Didn't understand spiritual things. But he was teaching them these things that they, to them, were just mental knowledge at that point, okay? Head knowledge. He was teaching it to them so that when the Holy Spirit were added, was added to it later, they would be converted and they would have that body of knowledge and then they would know what to do with it or how to use it. But up until that point, they didn't fully grasp what it was all about. To you, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are given. That means the mysteries, the understanding of God and his plan was only given to the disciples, not to the multitudes. He answered and said to them, because... Oh, let's see. No, verse 12 of 1. For whosoever has, to him shall be given. Now, he was giving it to them, and more would later be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not, and these multitudes who came to follow him did not have, from him shall be taken away even that he has. Now, would a merciful God, who wanted people to avoid trouble, trial, tribulation, and difficulty, withhold knowledge about the mysteries of the kingdom of God from them? Where's the mercy in that? Yet there has to be, doesn't there? There has to be. Somewhere in there. Let's go on. They don't have, it'll even be taken away what they do have. Therefore, therefore, as a result, here's the reason I speak to them in parables. Because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, Neither do they understand. He did not want them to understand. Can we get our head around that? And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. This was on purpose. That is why he had zero converts at the end of his ministry. He didn't intend to convert them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, and have not seen them. So, in the Old Testament, even prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Daniel, wanted to understand, and God would not let them understand. I think the most dramatic example is Daniel, who said, Go away, Daniel. This is for the time of the end, and you're not supposed to understand it. Ooh. Wouldn't you like to have God tell you that? You're not supposed to understand, Daniel. Forget it. 
Prophets and righteous men have desired to see these things which you see. He was starting a new movement. He was starting a new covenant. He was starting with new human leadership. And this is the first time he had begun to reveal some of the things that he revealed to them. When did he start doing it, basically? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That is a fulcrum. That is a teaching session that is the balance point of everything that is taught in the New Testament and even is what is needed to understand the Old Testament. That's what it was all about. It wasn't for the ears of those people who came uninvited. It was for the ears of his disciple, disciples whose ears were being blessed and their eyes for what they saw and heard. And to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. All right, let's go down to verse 34. All these things spoke Jesus to the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not to them. So it wasn't like sometimes he would preach Christ in conversion, or the kingdom of God in that sense to them, and other times he would not. No. He didn't speak to them except in parables so that they could not understand. Without a parable spoke he not to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. He was beginning to tell them things that he never told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or David, or Jeremiah. They were learning some new things. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Declare to us the parable of the tares of the field. In other words, tell us what you were talking about. We didn't get it either. So he had a, a he sent the multitude away. They didn't get it. Disciples didn't get it. So he says, what are you talking about here? Then he went on to explain. I don't have time to get further into that. Let's see, down to verse 53 came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he was coming to his own country. He taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this just the carpenter? And they wouldn't believe him. Was he a failure because they didn't believe him? I think not. He had a different purpose. Let's go to Matthew 21. Verse 45, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. Now they heard the parables that were, a, were written or spoken in spiritual code, and all they got out of it was he was against them. He was talking about them. They didn't understand it, didn't grasp it, didn't really get it, but they knew that it was bad and it had to do with them. But that's as far as they understood. Uh, let's hit Mark 4. Mark 4. Verse 10. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. Another example of where 
The parable was given. The multitude didn't understand, but they asked him alone. Then he would talk and explain. Verse 33. And with many such parables spoke he the word to them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spoke he not to them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. Now, is he being unmerciful? I mean, all these people came to listen to the Messiah. And he spoke in such a way so that they could not, would not understand. Could he possibly have saved them from an awful lot of grief? Could he have converted them? Maybe, but that wasn't his purpose, obviously. Does that mean those people are lost? Notice Luke 8, verse 10. Luke 8, verse 10. He said to them, To you, speaking of the disciples, it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. In other words, it is being hidden from them, so they cannot understand. Chapter 12 of Luke. Chapter 12. Uh, let me pick it up in verse 31. But rather seek you the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's church would always be a little flock. And the kingdom of God was limited to that little flock. It wasn't at that time offered to the world. Now, you and I understand the sequence of resurrections, if we understand it properly, and we understand the millennium and the great white throne judgment and so on. But it's easy to misunderstand, and the Protestants and other religionists who don't understand God's plan have difficulty with this, and they gloss over and will ignore the scriptures that we're focusing on about these parables because they think it's their job to go out and convert the world for God. And they're acting, actually, contrary to God's purposes. Just as in the church of God today, which in the end time had a responsibility to go out and convert many people, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, from all nations. It had that responsibility and job. It did not have the job of converting the world. And we have those who labor on today with, I think, good intentions for the most part to try to get the gospel out to the whole world the best they can in hopes they can save the world and they want the first resurrection to be a bigger deal than it would be if it weren't for their efforts. And they have a basic lack of understanding of who will be the first fruits and that it is limited to 144,000, not millions or billions or how many ever they can convert. They have a somewhat Protestant approach combined with a better knowledge, at least, of the Bible than the Protestants have. Not appreciably better. <laughs> somewhat better. They don't understand what God is doing right now. He's done, for the most part, calling, except for a few at the 11th hour, 
And he is now choosing a few out of the many that were called and worldwide. That is why they're having a great lack of success in all the preaching, teaching, and magazines that they're sending out, and very, very few converts, because God is not in that. Just as he was not in it when Christ walked the earth, when Christ himself preached and taught on this earth, there were zero conversions. Nil. Nothing. Until the day of Pentecost, when thousands were, including the disciples. God has different purposes at different times. And it is important for us to search the Scriptures and know what His purpose is when we be the ones who happen to be walking the earth. It was important for Jeremiah to understand God's purpose when he was preaching to whom he was preaching. It was imperative for John the Baptist to grasp who he was and what he was doing in the time that he was preparing for the Messiah. And he even said, there is one coming who is greater than I and whose latchet to wash his feet. I don't even have the wherewithal to be worthy of that. He had to understand the purpose of God at that time. Noah had to understand, at least in some degree, the purpose of God and what he was doing. And the rest of the world was absolutely shut off from the purpose of God. How many people, if they stopped to think about it, or just reacted without thinking perhaps, could grasp that the flood which came and buried in the water gasping for breath as their lungs filled, millions, perhaps billions, of human beings. Few died in those days except through violence from Garden of Eden down to Noah's flood. And women probably kept bearing children maybe for hundreds of years, not for just 10 or 15 or 20 or push 30 these days. And the earth proliferated with people very quickly. I suspect that there were billions after a thousand years. Would a merciful God ground them? Would a merciful God send fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and kill those people? Why not send a preacher to convert them? Preach the kingdom of heaven. Receive Christ, gay as you are, and you'll be saved what they're preaching today in some of the churches. You can be gay and be happy in the kingdom of God. Sick! I was in Luke 12 somewhere. We'll go on down to verse 31. Then Peter said to him, Lord, speak you this parable to us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward? How many people are faithful and wise? Only a very, very few. He was limiting this conversation to just those who would be wise and faithful stewards. How many were there then? How many are there now? Very few will understand, even today. 
in spite of the best efforts of the best preachers. Let's see. Is this the one where it says they'll be taken and snared and deceived? Maybe it's not. I wrote that down. I don't know whether I looked it up or not. I don't want to take the time to look for it right now. Let's go to John 12. John 12, verse 20. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. And then Philip came, various others, and he gave parables. Uh, verse 24, he's talking about a, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone, but if it die, it brings forth much fruit. In other words, a kernel of corn or grain has to itself die and give up its strength and energy for a new plant to come out of it. He that loves his life shall lose it. He that hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. We have to be willing to sacrifice this human life in order to have eternal life, is the bottom line there. So, he's going on explaining some of these things, some of these parables, and not explaining what they mean. But notice verse 36. Well, let's start in verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, Yet a little while is the light with you, speaking of himself. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. So he was the light of the world, and he was going, and the world would go back to darkness. It wouldn't stay forever light because God had come to the earth. It would go right back into darkness. He was the only light that was available. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spoke Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. It was his purpose to hide himself. It was his purpose to teach his disciples. It was his purpose for those who came following to show that he was the Son of God by doing some healings and various things, but it was not his purpose to teach them about the kingdom of heaven and give them a chance to be converted to it. It just wasn't his purpose at all. Acts 28. Now, we're going to put this all together in a little bit, and you'll see that this was a very merciful thing. Let's go to Acts 3. Acts 3, and I'll pick it up in verse 15. They denied the Holy One and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. So, it is being recounted here by Luke that Christ had been killed. What about those people that killed him? Are they lost? Are they gone? Forevermore? His name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which is by him has given, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And he says, then I realize you did it through ignorance, as your rulers did. You didn't really understand what you were doing. And then he says, repent you therefore, in verse 19, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the eternal. There is a time of refreshing coming, a time of restoration. And he says, repent and be converted. So there was now, there wasn't during Christ's time. Now he repeats, he, he did preach repentance. From sin, Christ did. But he did not 
give the Holy Spirit whereby conversion could come and people could indeed change their lives. And when he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached to you, whom the heaven must receive, he has to stay in heaven, until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. There is a time of restoration, and it has to do with the return of Christ. Now we see in Malachi that there has to come an Elijah at the end to restore all things. That is the beginning of the time of restitution. In other words, before Christ comes back and he himself restores everything to the whole earth, there has to come someone ahead of time, like John the Baptist did, showing what is to be done and that it has to be restored. So, the time of restitution of all things has to do with the return of Christ to this earth. And right up before that point, it says that there must be an Elijah come and restore all things, lest I smite the earth with the curse. The curse of death. So the end time ministry, just prior to the return of our Lord, has to restore all things in preparation for He who is all things. It has to be done. Other words, otherwise He will wipe it all out. And that will be the end of it. That's what He says in very clear terms. There is a work that has to be done at the end by someone. For Moses truly said to the fathers, A prophet shall eternally your God raise up to, up to you of your brethren, like to me, him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say to you. Most will ignore the two witnesses, 90% of the church. And yet God has said, we should listen, we should hear. But we have our own thoughts, our own minds, our own hearts. A lot of times we're not teachable, are we? It shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. There is a prophet that has to come to do the job of preparation for Christ. Now, that prophet ultimately is Christ. There's no doubt about that, even though there are some who claim today that they are that prophet. But it is true that there has to be someone to come and restore all things before Christ returns, he being the ultimate prophet. And everyone before him, before he returns, is simply speaking for him as a human being. That's how he converted the people, was through other human beings, whether we like it or not. That's just the way he chose to do it. Peter, James, and John all sweated. They all said the wrong things. Paul said the things he wanted to do he didn't do, and the things he didn't want to do he did. They all were human. They all had problems. They were all had difficulties. And yet God moved through them to do a work and convert thousands of people. So God can work through human beings. You know, we ought to take that as a positive, really. If God could take fishermen and tax collectors and turn them into apostles, He could take the weak in the base of the world and turn them into powerful evangelists, then it should give us encouragement that He could take us, the weak in base, the dregs of the world, and transform us 
into kings and priests in the world tomorrow. What an incredible miracle that is. What an act of mercy that is. The weak, sinners, weak, base, unable to control our thoughts, our hands, our feet, our mouths, our tongues, God could transform. It's a process, isn't it? We haven't gotten there yet. We're working on it. Hopefully, little by little, we're making progress. But it comes hard. It's not easy. It wasn't hard for Paul. I mean, it was very difficult for Paul. Man, I have to fight myself, die daily, crucify my flesh in the things that my flesh wants me to think and do. It wasn't easy for him. It isn't easy for us. But we should take hope in some of these things. Notice verse 26. Speaking to the, to the first fruits, uh, Luke was speaking to people who were listening to the true ministry in that day. Unto you first, God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from His iniquities. He brought a new way of life. He implemented that through the New Testament New Testament ministry to preach and to teach us what we need to hear. And the things they preached and taught were written down in this book. And that's what we review and use as the basis today for what we believe. It's what those men taught us. And every word that is written here is profitable to us for a lot of different reasons. So we've been blessed. But the rest of the world has not. They are not being taught what they need in order to turn from their iniquities and be saved, are they? They're just not. Is there any mercy in that? All right, let's go to Acts 28. Some of these things sound, in a way, kind of unmerciful, really, on the face of it, till you truly grasp what God is doing. Acts 28, beginning in verse 17. It came to pass that after three days Paul called the chief of the Jews together. When they were come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans, who would ultimately kill him. Who, when they had examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. The Romans could have checked me out. I would have come out all right. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was constrained to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. The only hope of Israel was in Christ our Lord coming back. And because of that purpose, he was in chains. That's being jailed for the right reasons for a change. Not for Paul, but for any of us. And they said to him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning you, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spoke any harm of you, but we desire to hear of you what you think. For as concerning this sect, Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him in his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified in the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. People sometimes get on us 
for preaching out of the prophecies in the Old Testament a lot. Where did Paul preach from? Out of the law and the prophets. All day long. Well, let's see. Maybe we should keep this going till sunset. Some believe the things which were spoken, some believe not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that Paul had spoken one word, well spoke the Holy Spirit by Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. One thing he imparted to them, and they left. He quoted Isaiah, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive, for the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Same thing Christ quoted earlier. Be it known, therefore, to you that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles, and that they will listen. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great arguments among themselves. Paul, he said, you guys won't listen, but he's given it to the Gentiles and they'll listen. Did that ever send them away muttering? They weren't about to be shown the truth. God said, you've been kept from truth. Said it to the Jews through Paul. All right, then let's go to Romans 9. Romans 9. Well, let's go to 8 first. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can do that? Can anybody? Now, he says he's merciful God. His mercy endures forever. Who will separate us? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. doesn't matter if they do all these things to us and kill us with a sword. For I am persuaded... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, principalities or powers, demons, things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that fits with John 3:16 and 17, that he sent him to save the world. And it is nothing can come up. Nothing is great enough to separate us from the love He has for us. He loves us wholeheartedly with no reservations. It is in His heart's desire and motivation and purpose to save the world. That is His goal and purpose. Well, how do you tie that together with all these things we've been reading? about keeping it from them, not letting them know, walking away, hiding himself, going away with his disciples to be heard, or for them only to hear him, and then the multitude catching up and listening in anyway, but still not understanding. 
because he very clearly stated, I don't want them to understand. That's why I speak to them in parables. So even if they come around, they won't get what I'm saying. And when they go away, or I hide from them, or we go up on the mountain, then I'll explain to you what it is that I'm saying. Those people were going to die in their sins, weren't they? They would never know from his lips the truth and understand it. Wouldn't happen. All right, from there, let's go on down to chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now, that's a merciful, pained heart, as we mentioned in Matthew 5 at the beginning feeling for people. I wish myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? All this stuff was given to Israel. Who are the fathers of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. Christ was in their lineage, came through them. And Paul said, the truth is not open to them. I wish I myself were a curse so that they would know. If I could trade myself for all of them, I would do it. I would give my life for my brothers and sisters. Not as though, verse 6, the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And we learn from other scriptures that the Israel of God, the New Testament church, is the key to the true Israelite or spiritual Jew as opposed to someone who is physically born an Israelite. Neither because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Only the church has been given the promise of eternal life, not the rest of Israel. And he rehearses what happened with Abraham and Isaac and so on. Uh, verse, ele verse 11, uh, end of it. According to election, those might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. God has a purpose, and no matter how good somebody might be on this earth, that isn't going to get them called. God calls the weak and the base. What do people do who are weak and base? They sin. They're sinners. If you're weak and base, you give in to your human nature. You do those things which come naturally. Because you do not have the power and the might and the nobility that is necessary to automatically do that which is good. So God calls people who are sinners, who have weaknesses, faults, and problems. Oy vey. That creates difficulties for all of us, doesn't it? Because that's the kind he calls. Ministers and laity alike. Why did he have a physical high priest in the days of Aaron? So that Aaron might purge himself and put on holy, righteous garments himself before he could go into the Holy of Holies. He had to ask forgiveness of his own sins before he could go in and atone for the rest of the people. God chose men who sweat and sin to lead us on purpose.
Christ did not convert any. He left that to men who had weaknesses and problems and faults. Sometimes we have difficulty with that when we see faults and weaknesses or perceive them in men. And it makes life difficult for us, doesn't it? Paul, Peter, James, John all fought that battle. And it's a difficult one. So it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's move on down then. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I have that sovereignty. I have that ability. I have that capacity. I can do that. I will do that. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. You can have people who try to lead a Christian life, and they might be stronger and better people by far than we are, just as human beings. And a lot of them are, because God specifically picked out the weak and the base for now, so that in our transformation might show the glory of God. Not how wonderful we were, and he called the best they could find on the earth, the greatest. Those with the greatest ability, those with the greatest morals, those with the greatest everything. He didn't look down and find the finest human beings on earth and call them, because then men would glory, glory in themselves. Instead, he called you and me. We won't even go into that. We'll not go there today. Relax. But not much. God is doing this with a purpose. And He showed mercy on us who did not deserve mercy, didn't He? Called us into His truth. For the Scripture said to Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose, if I raise you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God even used Pharaoh to show his glory when he defeated Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian empire at the hands of Israel. Therefore has he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he pardons. Now God is all merciful, but it says here that he hardens people. How do we get this to come together in a logical way? You will say then to me, why does he yet find fault, or who has resisted his will? No, but, O oh man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me like this? We could all go before God and say, Oh my God, why have you made me like this? Couldn't we? And don't we? But who are we? He's using the weak and the base to transform us for His glory. So He had to take people like you and me, didn't He? That's the kind He had to have. So let's not be discouraged over what we've been or are. Let's be encouraged by what we can become and be busy becoming that. That is our goal and our purpose. Has not the power, potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? He can make us any way he wants, and there are all kinds of people. 
He's going to, verse 23, make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy. That's what you and I are, is pots or vessels of mercy. Just human beings down here that sweat and slobber and stink, and He's showing mercy on us. That's what He's doing. We're vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared to glory. He created us as clay pots with the purpose of glorifying us. Even us whom He has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Take that, Jews. <laughs> they didn't like that kind of preaching. As He also said in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. A bride will be called beloved that was just a whore and is forgiven, straightens up, and becomes the bride of Christ. That's us. How incredible are the mercies of God that He could take clay, earthen pots, easily shattered, and turn them into vessels of glory and a bride for His Son. Amazing. It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, verse 26, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cried concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. We've been preaching that from the prophets and Moses for a long time now. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will eternal make upon the earth. Now, he's doing it in mercy. Remember, he says, if he doesn't cut it short, in Matthew and Luke, that no flesh will be saved alive. So he's going to cut it short to preserve human life for a purpose. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom had been made like Gomorrah. If he didn't cut this short, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody wiped out. Nobody saved. Now let's skip on uh, chapter 10, verse 11, or verse 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon Him. So He opened salvation up at some point, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile. Now He had said Himself to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, didn't He? So God had a plan and a purpose. There was a time when... If you had thought, well, I ought to go speak to the Gentiles, nothing would have happened. Because God had not opened the door to the Gentiles yet. It was to the Jew first. Then he opened it to the Gentiles through Paul. And the Jews and the rest of the ministry, including Peter, had trouble accepting that. That God was working through Paul and showing mercy on the Gentiles, not just the Israelites. Sometimes we have difficulty understanding God's plan and purpose in a particular moment in time. Peter had trouble understanding God's purpose with Paul. Was that clear? That simple? They had big arguments about it. Finally got it all settled. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Got to hear about it first. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Christ went, says he has to stay in the heavens until the time of restitution. So he's left preachers here on the earth to preach. And how shall they be preached except they be sent? If you want to preach, better be sure you were sent to do that. Somehow, some way. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace 
and bring glad tidings of good things. In other words, those feet are headed in the right direction, and that's a beautiful thing. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Who has believed our report? Verse 18, But I say, have they not heard? Truly their sound went out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Did not Israel know? First Moses told them. Isaiah was very bold. Verse 20, said, I was found of them that sought me not. But to Israel, verse 21, he says, All day long have I stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. God says, I've sent preachers, I've sent prophets, I've tried to get Israel to see, and they will not accept. They will find excuses or reasons or human logic or whatever it is not to believe the things that I have sent people to teach them. They'll find a way to deny it. I say then, chapter 11, has God cast away his people? They wouldn't listen. Didn't listen to the prophets. Didn't listen then. And they won't listen now. Don't want to change. Want to live the way they want to live. Besides that, it's just the preacher's opinion. Is it? We better be careful. God hasn't cast away his people. He says, for I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and so on. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Don't you understand the scripture, what it says of Elijah, how he makes intercession to God against Israel saying, you know, I'm the only one left. And he says, no, wait a minute, I've got 7,000 haven't bowed the knee to Baal. That'll happen again. Even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. A few thousand came into the church in that day. Most of them later fell away, didn't they? Only a small percentage of those people that were called in that day are going to be part of the first fruits. Not a high percentage. It says the rest were blinded, verse 7. That meshes with what we've read about Christ in the parables and so on. The rest were blinded. According as it is written, verse 8, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear, to this day. Verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my office. All right. Uh, talks about the wild olive tree and being grafted in and becoming part of the olive plant. Speaking of the Gentiles who were grafted into Israel so that they might have a part in the kingdom of God. Because he had gone first to the Jew. All right, let's go down. It said, verse 20, end of it, Be not high-minded, but fear. Speaking to the Gentiles. For if God spared not the natural branches, those which naturally came through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the lineage of Israel, if he spared them not when they disobeyed, where do you Gentiles think you fit? So don't get... Overblown in your idea of yourself because you've been called. He might not spare you. Behold, therefore, verse 22, the goodness and severity of God. Now, we're going to begin to fully understand here from Romans 11 this apparent dichotomy between God saying, I am a merciful God, and I will show mercy where I will show mercy, and my mercy endures forever, and a God who will also kill, 
A God who will wipe out billions of people? How does this come together? He says, I'm about to show you here the goodness and the severity of God. He has both sides. On them which fell, severity. They died in the wilderness. They died in Sodom and Gomorrah. They died at the flood. That's the severe side of God. But it is not unmerciful. I'll show you that. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. Are you once saved, always saved? No. You've got to keep continue doing that which is good, or you'll be cut off anyway, even though you accepted the truth and started that way. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, the Gentiles, or the Jews, I mean, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. All right, here's a mystery that is only understood by the Spirit of God. Christ did it from the multitudes, only explained it to his disciples, and we are part of that discipleship. Didn't want us to be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, thinking that this is because I'm so good, God has called me. No. That blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. God has had a plan working all along that Israel would not be blessed beyond a certain point, physical, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in as well. When he would open it up to all people, not just those who had been selected to be an example to the nations of the world and weren't, but to those who had not even been selected but were grafted in later, Israel was not going to be blessed before they were. Just as in Hebrews 11, Paul said, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all these guys died in the faith, not having received the promise, so that it would not be done without you. And by extrapolation, us. At the return of Christ. Now verse 26. And so, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So now, all that Israel has been through, their carcasses dropping in the wilderness, uh, plague of snakes, you name it, throughout the history of Israel, desecration and desolation and captivity, on and on, bad things happen to Israel. Why? Because God simply, at some point, wanted them to listen. But... He hid their eyes from the truth until they would be ready to listen and respond. He hid it from them to save them in the long run. He was going to be merciful till the end. Notice in verse 32, For God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. God knows that had he revealed 
his truth to the world, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, that with Satan here on this earth, deceiving the whole world and motivating the whole world and playing upon the human nature of the whole world, that even though he had introduced his truth, it would have been summarily rejected because people want Satan's way. And they would have ignored it, departed from it, just as Israel always did, and he would have had to have destroyed them. So God has been showing incredible patience and mercy throughout the ages of man's existence on this earth, so that in the long run he might save us. That is his mercy. Now, it is appointed to all men once to die, isn't it? And those that sin do die, don't they? The wages of sin is death. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all are deserving of death. But God has called a few. Physical Jews, physical Gentiles, doesn't matter. Here at the end, to become spiritual Jews. And he has showed mercy upon us, vessels of mercy, by calling us, because he feels in his heart and mind that being weak and base, able, therefore, hopefully, to see our sins, see our weaknesses and our faults, and turn from them by the power of God, we can be converted and be part of the first fruits and be a part of his kingdom. But the rest of mankind, apart from these few, he has blinded until the time of restitution. When Satan is bound and will not be around, then, once they have been punished by the famine, by the sword, by death, and only those who survive and have seen all that death, are going to be repentant enough and humble enough that when Christ and his bride come to teach them the truth, they'll be ready to listen. And all those people who've died or been killed even by God throughout history are going to be resurrected in the great white throne judgment, and they will have been humbled by their experiences and all the tribulations they lived through on this earth, and by death itself, and then by being resurrected by God, to pop up out of the ground or the ocean, wherever they were. They're going to be in a teachable mood and attitude. The vanity, the ego, going to be checked at the door, it's going to fade away, and they're going to say, man, what we went through wasn't very good. You got something better? Yeah, by the matter of fact, we do. Here it is. They'll be ready to listen and be converted, and ultimately they'll be a part of the kingdom of God. So he's showing mercy right now by being patient and waiting, and he has a plan of salvation laid out for everyone. God is the most incredible example of mercy that we will ever, ever encounter. Even those people who were so against God before the flood will be saved, the vast majority of them. He will not be a failure. He's a father. He's not a eunuch. He will have children. Those in Sodom and Gomorrah were filthy, perverted, and despicable beyond comprehension. 
They come up in the second resurrection, they'll be saved. They won't be gay anymore, they'll be straight. God will save them in the long run. So even though He killed them, physically, He still had their best interests in mind. Now, how hard should it be for you and me to understand that God is doing what He's doing to His church to get us to respond with repentance and change to come out of this world and live the way God wants us to live in His way of life instead of this worldly way of life. And He is punishing the church and paddling it soundly that we might get that point. Now, it sounds in a way unmerciful if you don't understand God that here you have your church, the apple of your eye, and you can bless it, and you can do this for it, and you can cause it to spread around the world. But then if people don't have the right attitude, you just blow it out of the water. Now, that would seem unmerciful. But what is the desired response? That we might repent and obtain mercy. And if we won't repent and obtain mercy beforehand, He will put us into the great tribulation where we will not have food or water, where we will eat our own children. It will be so bad. And if we do stand to choose, choose to stand up for God and keep His Sabbath and obey Him, in spite of having been thrown in that, we will be killed in the most heartless, painful ways that our captors can imagine for us. And that will be an act of mercy on God because we did not repent ourselves. He will put us in a position where we must or die eternally. So whatever it takes to save us from ourselves and Satan, God will do because He is so merciful. If it takes deprivation if it takes anything, he will do it to save us. He put some kind of an eye affliction on Paul that the people might believe. He puts Paul through beatings and shipwreck and prison and all kinds of terrible things where most of us would have said of Paul, he must be sinning. No, through much tribulation and many enter the kingdom, and many are the afflictions of the righteous. So the more we go God's way, the more He'll lay on us. He'll not put on us more than we can absolutely stand, even though it feels like it sometimes. But He will show mercy if we obey. He sent His Son to this earth to save the world. Not then, but to start a process. And you and I today are a part of that process of mercy that God started through clay pots that have become vessels of mercy. And we are here today to be a very, very important part of the plan of God in saving the world. We are called to be a part of the very bride of our Lord and Master, soon coming king and ruler, elder brother, husband. What an act of mercy. But he is called a weak in the base and is transforming us, converting us by the power of God to become kings and rulers, leaders for this sin-sick world 
but He is going to show mercy on through His Son and us. That's why He says He will show mercy upon those who show mercy. Even His final act in the last chapter of man is an act of mercy. When it's all said and done and finished and everyone has had an absolute fair chance at salvation, God is going to destroy the incorrigibly wicked in a lake of fire. It will be very fast. They will die quickly. But that will be His final act of mercy on any who rebel against the ways of God and who will be in such an angry, mean, bitter state that they, if given eternal life, would remain forevermore bitter, angry, frustrated. His final act of mercy will be to destroy them so that they will not spend their lives in hatred and misery. That in itself is also an act of mercy because His mercy endures forever. He's offered us, in mercy, an opportunity to be a bride of Christ, to teach the world love and peace and happiness and security forevermore in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Right now, we're boot camp. We're learning to be what we ought to be. And He's showing mercy on you and me right now by giving us the information He's giving us from His Word to show His plan and His purpose and that ultimately He will save the world. What he set his hand to do, he's going to do it. Right now is our chance and our opportunity to be the first of the world that is saved. So let's have mercy on one another and help one another be what we ought to be so that God can ultimately show his incredible mercy and give we, we who deserve death, eternal life in his kingdom.